Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. I know a lot of you out there love to hear fun and interesting stories from history, but also there are a number of you that specifically enjoy stories that involve true crime. Today, I have a special guest who's the author of several books on true crime stories from Michigan's past. His name is Tom Carr. And he's the author of Blood on the Mitten, Infamous Michigan Murders. Also, Dark Side of the Mitten, Crimes of Powerful Criminals in Michigan's Past and Present. And My Bad, Robbers, Cutthroats, and Thieves in Michigan's Past and Present, among other books. Today, he's going to indulge us with a chilling true crime story from Southwest Michigan, as well as some other tidbits of other stories. And so make sure that your seat belts are secure and your tray tables are in their upright and locked positions as this might get a little messy. Welcome to the show, Tom. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you, Michael. I'm glad to be here. Um, yeah. It's a beautiful, well, it's a, it's a chilly day here, I guess. Yeah, we just had a bunch of rain where I'm at. So, Tom, could we begin by telling the audience a little bit about yourself? How did you become interested in true crime stories as a writer? Well, I um, <clears throat> was a journalist for about three decades, and I covered crimes as a reporter. Um, one of those crimes that I covered ended up being in my first book, uh, Blood on the Mitten. And that's in a chapter oh. called um, A Convenient Confession, and it occurred in Kalkaska. And it was uh, one that achieved both uh, statewide and national attention, uh, both at the time because of the heinousness of the crime and then later on because of the DNA um, kind of snafu involved in it. Anyway, mm -hmm. I'll, that was... Uh, uh, but anyway, I've always been interested in crime as uh, well as, uh, you know, other topics. But when a couple of my friends, uh, yeah, they, they started this publishing company along with another a third guy. Uh, and um, they uh, asked me if there was something I wanted to write for them. And um, mm -hmm. uh, we talked about it. And myself and Heather Shaw, one of the you know, friends of mine who was uh, starting this uh, company. And uh, we decided that crime along with, uh, you know, uh, true crime in Michigan, along with what we call the murder map in the first book, which is um, tells people where a murder occurred, whether the buildings are still standing and stuff like that. And it's not included in every single one, but it's been a very popular feature and I've kind of included it and, in, you know, when, when possible in my subsequent books as well. So anyway, so we hashed that out and it fit both my interests and my, you know, knowledge as well as their interests and in what they would want to publish. And, uh, since then, uh, you know, it's been a great, uh, working with them, and I really enjoyed um, as well. I really enjoyed, um, you know, talking to people at libraries and stuff like that. So, you have three books published on true crime in Michigan, or are there are more. Um, I have three right now. Uh, okay. Yeah, 
the ones you mentioned earlier. And those are all compilation books. And right now I'm working on a fourth compilation book, as well as uh, a couple of books that are about chapters that were in earlier books, but expanded into a book length, you know, because I think they both, uh, these stories support that. Oh, sounds interesting. I, 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 yeah, they're not from Southwest Michigan, these two particular stories, mm-hmm. but uh, they are a couple of chapters that I had in there. So I'll, I'll probably, I'll leave it at that at this point. Okay. And some of your stories in your books date back to as early as the 1700s. Is that right? As during the French French period of ownership of yeah. Michigan? or Yeah, as a matter of fact, um <clears throat> There are some even, uh, you know, regarding Chief Pontiac and such that are in the 1600s, but then the 1700s with uh, Cadillac and uh, starting Detroit and and kind of in my third book, Dark Side of the Mitten, I talk about, you know, kind of the uh, uh, his reign over Detroit when it was a fort and when it was under the French flag and all that. So and some of the he was not so much a criminal as a scoundrel, but. Interesting. So there's a story that you're going to talk to us today that took place in southwest Michigan over in the Grand Haven area with a notorious known criminal. You want to go into that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, It was 1933 and it was Babyface Nelson, who um, incidentally did not like the, the moniker Babyface. You know, he thought it was uh, somebody that right. thought that he looked young and he didn't like that because his whole career was being a tough guy. Well, he wasn't from mm-hmm. Michigan or anything, but he had uh, already had a pretty successful criminal career and had built up a name for himself. But he wanted to, you know, kind of uh, do the Super Bowl of the 1930s era crime world, and that would be robbing a bank. And, um, it was usually done with a gang of people at that point. And so he was leading this gang and um, he targeted a bank in Grand Haven and he um, put together kind of a dream team for this crime. He, he, he put together a dream team, and one of the guys that he put together was uh, somebody who pulled a lot of heist before, and his last name was Bentz. And Bentz was uh, somebody who wanted to um, uh, <clears throat> be the getaway driver for this whole thing. But Babyface kind of figured that's not what I hired you for. I want you uh, to come into the bank with me. And uh, mm-hmm. so he hired some guy by the name of Freddie. And so Freddie didn't do the kind of work that Bentz was known for doing. And uh, that was like going into a bank that he was going to rob and he would pretend to be a rich potential customer looking at their um looking at their uh, um, uh, uh, security and, and such. But hmm. Babyface Nelson hired this guy by the name of Freddie that we really don't know anything about, but we do know that uh, his job performance was not pleasing to um, Babyface. And so uh, his career and everything else was cut short after this. However, so um, mm-hmm. he drove up to the bank in um, 
in in Grand Haven. And Babyface Nelson went up to the bank and he was the first one in and he had a basket because apparently that looked perfectly normal to carry a basket into a bank. <laughs> he had a gun in the basket. He walked up to a teller and said, um, you know, and then as he was asking for change for a 20, he pulled out a gun and um, he pointed at the, uh, the, the the bank teller and said, you know, this is a stick up. And so one of the tellers at that point, as they pulled the shades on the bank uh, windows, uh, one of the tellers stepped on the button that rang into oh. the sheriff's department, but also rang into um, a deputized business owner next door to the bank. And okay. this man owned a, um, his name was Hankama, uh, uh, and he owned a, a furniture store, but it was also, uh, and was also an undertaker. Well, anyway, so he gets the ring mm-hmm. that there's something going on. So he grabs his gun and he goes out and he sees Freddie sitting next to the bank in the Buick and the Buick is idling. And he puts mm-hmm. two and two together and he puts his gun right into the window, pointing it at uh, at Freddie, and says, "You know what are you doing here?" And uh, Freddie just stepped on the gas, and he was out of there. So, Babyface Nelson and the gang came out of the bank, and there's no Freddie. There's no Buick. They've got their bags of money, and they've got their guns, and they had nothing. You know, they had to just kind of uh, do what they could. There was a car that was stopped at a light, and they pulled what we would now call a carjacking. They pulled a gun on the two women in the front seat who were there with their children. And they had them all get out of the car. uh, And... uh, they thought about keeping a baby, I guess, according to one of the tellings of this story. But it's like, I think even, you know, a hardcore criminals like this would have probably figured that we don't need that kind of public yeah. relationship. Right, right. So um, they gave, nobody was hurt. They took the car. They drove for a few miles, and then they realized that the gas gauge was all the way on empty. Oh, man. So they didn't really want to pull into a gas station as word was getting around pretty fast that there was a bank robbery. So they pulled up <laughs> behind this nice car of a Grand Rapids family who was stopped at a strawberry stand. And mm. they just left their car that was with the empty tank, grabbed their guns and their money and hopped into the the other car that was sitting there, as I'm sure the family and the the, the strawberry seller stood there, you know, just mm-hmm. totally uh, open-jawed, slack-jawed, watching what was going on. They hopped in there, and they went uh, a few more miles, and a tire blew out. So they oh, had God. to hijack another car. So they, this other car that that, 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 that next car that came along had four college students in it. They hijacked that, mm-hmm. and then they went 
And that car got them to the Indiana state line, which is what they had to do because at this point, bank robbery was still a state crime. So they got away with the money and everything. And the police were still looking for him. And there was one guy who was, uh, who, who, who was injured um, by one of the vigilantes and he was taken to the hospital and his, he, uh, he, he, he was arrested, but Babyface and the rest of the gang got away, you know, with their money. And it was, uh, I guess in the end it was a success, but it could have been very well been a disaster. Now Babyface Nelson, yeah. as we, you know, was, uh, um, at that point, uh, bank robbery uh, was like the in crime. And so very soon it would become not a state crime, but a federal crime. And so police that were following the, the bank robbers could could cross state lines to get them. Uh, that wasn't right. the case at this point. But um, anyway, John Dillinger at that point would have been the public enemy number one. But as soon as they... Mm-hmm killed John Dillinger, uh, Babyface Nelson became public enemy number one, and he had a short reign before mm-hmm. he was in a fatal shootout as well. So anyway, so wow. that was his, uh, you know, a well-known gangster as a foray into Michigan there. Interesting. Yeah, I did an episode on this podcast with just looking at a couple of stories that I found out about John Dillinger because I was trying to find out the history of him in Michigan, and he had probably came through southwest Michigan because a lot of the crimes they did were in Indiana, Ohio, and over in the mm-hmm. Illinois area. And then he also escaped up into Michigan at one point. I think he hid out in the UP for a while. Um, mm-hmm. There was one story I came across where this woman was walking home from work and it started to rain and this guy pulled up and offered her a ride that turned out to be John Dillinger. You know, <laughs> she gave her a ride home was in her that car when it was a rainstorm. Yeah, it was in Michigan. It was over, um, I forgot what town it was, but it was a little bit north of Detroit, you know. And a few days later, later she saw uh, in the TV or, or into, on the, heard on the radio or something or saw it in the paper about how he had a, they tried to um, capture him at a house somewhere over in that corner of the state, but he wasn't there anymore. But um, Okay. Yeah, interesting history with yeah. those guys. They they did a lot of traveling around state lines, you know. Yeah. Well, now with uh, John Dillinger, well, there's a theory that the reason why he'd never actually robbed a bank in Michigan was because of the vigilantes that would uh, come out. And this happened in Grand Haven. And uh, I also mm-hmm. have a, another story in, in my book, My Bad, um, uh, about a one in Mancelona in which, which is a bit more Northwest Michigan, but the, in which in 1930, there were vigilantes from both Mancelona and Bel Air who were chasing robbers of a Mancelona bank. Well, now mm-hmm. they kind of, Posse Group A met Posse Group B along the line somewhere and they started shooting at each other. And at a house that they thought the robbers were in that they weren't in. So anyway, so this was um, just kind of related to the John Dillinger thing that there's that there's a there's right. one of his. That's a theory that I've heard that you know that that right. John Dillinger had uh, not he didn't want to deal with the posse's in Michigan. 
I don't know if that's true or yeah, not. Yeah, could be. Could be, yeah. Or it could be that he just needed a state that um, he had a he could hide out in without being chased down. But uh, yeah, a lot of interesting yeah. stories with those guys. Now, actually, uh, if I might, John Dillinger, also uh, his most famous jail escape, which was in Crown Point, Indiana, just a little footnote here, um, uh, the... Mm-hmm. His accomplice in getting out of Crown Point, Indiana jail was a man by the name of Herbert Youngblood. Now, Herbert uh, rode boxcars up to Port Huron, and his life ended in a shootout in a store after he went there to steal and stole some cigarettes. And uh, hmm. police came, and he, they ended up in a shootout, and that's that's that was his downfall. So that was another Dillinger... Wow. Slash, well, the Dillinger, Michigan connection, I mean, yeah. Yep, yep. I think Port Huron was the the place that that woman said she saw in the newspaper the following day or a couple of days later. Oh, okay. Some kind of a shootout in Port Huron. So that must have been the connection. I think Dillinger may have been with the guy and then Dillinger left before the police got there or something. But uh, Mm -hmm. interesting history with true crime. So there was another story about a Tommy gun that uh, connected with the St. Valentine's Day massacre in Chicago over in Berrien County. You want to well, yes, tease yes. us a little bit with some details on that? Yes, yes, yes. That's um, that was Fred Killer Burke. He was living in Southwest Michigan in St. Joseph, uh, following, and mm-hmm. this was about less than a year after the the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. In fact, it was the December of the year of the massacre, which I believe was 1929. Uh, but anyway, so, so Fred Burke was um, hiding there under the name of Fred Dane, and he was telling people that he was a rich oil man. Well, and he was living there with his girlfriend and kind of hiding out. Now, it's never been proven that he was one of the guys who was involved in the mm-hmm. in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre, but he was a top-notch, I guess, uh, not to give him kudos, but he was a, he was a top-notch uh, hitman for both the yeah. Purple Gang and Al Capone. Uh, okay. And... So he did end up anyway. So one night he just had uh, went out, and uh, in December he got a little bit drunk, and was driving home, and his car sideswiped another car, and he put a dent in the guy's car, and the guy pulled him over, and it was a farmer by the last name of Cool, mm-hmm. K O L, and Mister Cool said, "Okay, you know we can settle this for five dollars." Which is, you know, I looked it up. That was like seventy dollars now, but still, that wouldn't, you know, you couldn't get a dent repaired for seventy bucks. So it was a pretty good deal. Right. But Fred Burke was having none of it, and he was feeling ornery and drunk, and he said to heck with it. And so he just figured he'd drive away. But Mister Cool oh. pursued him, not knowing who he was pursuing, to a stoplight. There was a Policeman on foot patrol. It's in the middle of St. Joseph, and there's Christmas shopping traffic. And oh boy, bad timing. 
Yeah, and 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 Cool says, "Hey, this guy ran into me. We need to make a police report." So he says, "You know, okay, go to the police office, to the police department, and fill out a report." And uh, he figured, you know, he was just going to follow Mister Cool. But then Skelly was the nickname of the police officer. Jumps on the the, the sideboard of his car. Uh-huh. And Burke shoots him in the chest, knocks him off. Oh. Skelly's taken to the hospital. In all the in all the uh, chaos, Burke drives uh, straight south, going to get get away, going to his house, which I believe was on, on the lake. And he's going down uh-huh. there, and he gets out of his he he gets out of his car, gets a ride from somebody else. Uh, he goes into um, off on foot down to his own property. He sees a bunch of police cars already there because mm-hmm. they had been, he'd been, you know, pointed out as the guy. And so he gets uh, somebody else to drive him a little ways. And, you know, serious, that guy drives away when he goes in to make a phone call or something like that into a drugstore. Uh, anyway, he eventually he just disappears. There's a pretty big okay. manhunt for him. Nobody knows where he is until the following March. Well, meanwhile, he's still missing, but the police have gone through his house and he they have found his they have identified him as Fred Killer Burke, being the homeowner and such, and they find a Tommy gun there and they suspected that it might have to do with the St. Valentine's Day massacre. So they got a hold of a Northwestern University professor who was a pioneer in ballistics science. And he was right, just... Right, yeah, because ballistic, ballistic science was just in early development right that time, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I believe so. Yeah. yeah. And so he shot, he took the Tommy gun that they had got found and shot it into a soft target and determined that it was you know, showing the same markings uh, as the as the guns that were found, or as the bullets that were found at the St. Valentine's Day Massacre. So Fred wow. Burke is on the run. He makes his way to Missouri, and it's March of the next year when uh, somebody kind of didn't, took a disliking to him in this Missouri town where he's hiding out. And it mm-hmm. happened to be somebody who was a big buff of true crime magazines, which were really big at the time. Mm-hmm. And so he went combing through his stacks of magazines, thinking this guy, you know, he, he, he doesn't seem to have a job, but he's always flashing his money around and stuff. And uh, mm-hmm. he's living with a waitress that he met in town and whatever. And so this guy calls cops and then says, you know, calls cops, say, I'm pretty sure this Fred Burke guy is, is living here. So they sneaked into his house while he was sleeping. He wakes up to a police presence. They take him. They take him, uh, you know, with a big uh, caravan and heavily armed back to Michigan. Now, there are several states that wanted him, but Missouri said mm-hmm. that Michigan could have first crack at him because it was a cop killing and it was also a pretty good cut and dried case. They had a lot of witnesses and such. Yeah. So yeah. he went to Michigan, got a life sentence. Uh, was sent, put at Marquette State Prison, 
that life sentence was about nine years because he died about nine years later. He uh, he actually uh, was kind of like the Birdman of Alcatraz. He uh, cultivated. He he had pet canaries in his uh, cell, and he died. Now we still don't know if he was one of the gunmen. I would put money on it. I suppose if I, you know if there was any way to prove it, but uh, that he was one of the gunmen in the St. Valentine's Day massacre. But um, on the other hand, he was definitely connected with it in some case. But, you know, amazingly, yeah. nobody ever made a deathbed confession about that case or anything. And we still don't know who would have pulled the trigger in the most famous. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it was one of the two most famous mob hits in history. And I think both of them had a strong Michigan tie. And, of course, we know right. what the other one. Well, what was the other one? Would have been Jimmy Hoffa. Oh, Jimmy Hoffa. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah, that I was. Uh, I would say yeah, yeah. I would say that's up there in infamy, along with the uh, St. Valentine's Day massacre. Yeah, yeah. There's that new show, uh, The Irishman, that they just uh, released last year on uh, Netflix or something like that. That I just recently got around to watching, and I had no yeah. idea it was about Jimmy Hoffa. I just thought it was just a, another story, you know. And yeah. uh, then I. Like wow, this so they went into a little bit of detail of what was known about Jimmy Hoffa's disappearance and uh, all kinds of mystery and intrigue about that. Do you cover the Jimmy Hoffa story in any of your books? I actually do. I touch on it in um, my first one, mm-hmm. uh, and also, you know, about the the murder. But then on my third one, which is uh, Dark Side of the Mitten, uh, which is subtitled. Um, Crimes of power and, and powerful criminals in Michigan's past and present. I talk about, you know, right. the. I talk about him up to his death because basically, under the, you know, most of mostly now we know about him disappearing. So mm-hmm. I talk about, you know, yeah. why he was, you know, and then some of the some of the crimes and some of the, you know, shady things that uh, he is known to or thought to have been involved in before that. So. Yeah. I do. So I do talk about it. Yeah. yeah. Good. And of course, the, you mentioned the Purple Gang. I assume that you've probably ventured a little bit into the, some of their history in some of your books. Yeah. Kind of hard to in Michigan pretty... without tapping. Oh, yeah. And they're fascinating. And what I think is also fascinating is like the the um, the um, the way they sent uh, trucks of booze from Detroit, probably from Windsor, you know, most likely down to, but controlled by the Purple Gang, sold to mm-hmm. Al Capone, and that went down. Um, what was uh, well, ninety four. Well, when it was Michigan Avenue, I guess, was the main thoroughfare between Detroit and Chicago at that point, right? Uh, so right, down right, Michigan yep. Avenue, which runs basically what the where ninety does now and mm-hmm. so there was a constant flow of these you know bread trucks or or whatever you know um trucks with legitimate cargo or at least you know ostensibly so and, and booze piled up inside of them going from uh, the purples to the um to capone's kingdom and there yeah. is a rumor and i haven't been able to uh substantiate it but there was a theater you know that's called the dome theater d-o-h-m in albion and they say mm-hmm. that it was where they uh, people in Albion told me that that it was where um, the Purples and the Capone gang often met was at this theater. 
and um, they used to sit right under the projection projector, you know, the projection booth or whatever, oh. so that they wouldn't be heard sitting there talking, you know, in the back of this theater. Hmm. Interesting. I think I'd heard somebody reference that before. So okay, yeah, some of the folklore that goes along with it, and it's you know hard to prove or disprove, but it's uh, still mm-hmm. fascinating to, to know. And uh, of course the. Uh, the assassination of Warren Green Hooper, the uh, all right, Michigan yeah, Michigan congressman senator. that was uh, state senator. Yeah, it was uh, assassinated by the Purple Gang, or at least that's what it's believed that he was well, uh, killed by like. them. He was going to testify against them, and suddenly he gets assassinated on the way back from Lansing to, I guess Calhoun County one night. So yeah, back to Jackson area or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And there was also a belief that they had uh, let the killers out of Jackson, and so some, they might have been working with somebody on the inside. I don't know. Um, but yeah. yeah, there's a whole complicated story. There's been whole books written about the Purple Gang in Michigan that uh, well, pretty fascinating details. I've had some people that are Albion history buffs that have been on talking about some of that story. So where can um, some of the people out there that might be interested in reading your books I have some fans I already know that bought three of your books at the recent uh, Festival of Oddities festival. They texted me and said, hey, I got Tom Carr's books. So uh, yeah, could great. you uh, tell us you know, where, where can they buy your books online if they want to read your books? And well, do you have any upcoming book signings? Online at, the, at the big one at Amazon. Uh, you can also okay. buy them. I would ask you to check out your local bookstore first just because I'm a great supporter of local bookstores and uh you know, I know mm-hmm. that there are some in, 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 I don't know exactly what your target area is, but yeah, I know that Schuler's Books in Grand Rapids carries it and other smaller, mm-hmm. more, you know, independents throughout the. There's a nice independent bookstore over in Marshall that I need to go visit. And uh, they've been oh, really yes. good about trying to carry local Michigan authors. I forget the name of it off the top of my head, but uh, I think they're the only bookstore in Marshall nowadays. Yes, and I forget what it is, but it was the people that owned it prior to that became friends of mine, mm-hmm. uh, and they had previously owned a bookstore in Battle Creek, and then they opened that one, um, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> the Donahues. And um, but anyway, yeah, I'm trying to think of what, yep. but I know it's yeah, but it's a but it's got a different name now, and it's a very very good book <clears throat> store. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, but the new owners are pretty nice. They're um, also very welcoming to new to Michigan authors. So, mm-hmm. especially if it has something to do with the Calhoun County or something like that, you know. So, yeah, should be well, a good place for you to do a book signing if you're ever interested in doing that, coming over this side of the state. But uh, yeah, yeah, I'll put the links to where you can get Tom's books in the show note descriptions, folks. If you are interested and. In, uh, checking his out out his author page on Amazon. Uh, a lot of great stories from Michigan's past. And um, do you have a website, Tom, or a Facebook page that they can follow you I on? I have a domain, <laughs> and I have to okay. set it up because I want to sell books on it. But it is called bloodonthemitten.com. And so hopefully um, okay. that's what, when, when will this be up for people to hear? Because I'll try to get it um, a little bit more to It'll it. It'll be up this but, coming Sunday. It'll be on Sunday, yeah. Sunday, okay. Well, I'll try to get yeah. to uh, you know try to get that beefed up a little bit between now and then. 
Okay, um, sounds good. Otherwise, I'll, otherwise, I'll shoot you an email and say don't don't set them there. It's a disaster. No, that's fine. I also know that you have a Facebook page, so I'll put the link to that so people can like and follow you there. I know that you post notices on um, your Facebook author page. I think is out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah it's, it's just um, Power Author on Facebook. So. Okay. Well, it's been great having you on. Any other fascinating uh, stories or things that you want to say before we wrap up for today? Oh, not really. Um, I just uh, really, uh, it was great meeting you at that. Uh, you mentioned the Festival of Oddities uh, last weekend. And that's what a where great, I, what a, what a great event that Charlotte it really, really was. Charlotte really has a great event out there. It really was. And, uh, it kind of energized me again, uh, just getting, uh, you mm-hmm. know, cause I'm, I'm working on, like I said, on my pro some projects. And so it just helped really energize me just being around the other authors and stuff. And so talking to readers that always, readers also always the fans, read. I think the fans, you had a lot of people at your booth when I saw you there. Well, thanks. Yeah. Uh, I, fans of true crime or de- yeah. Yeah. They, um, I did, I did, Fairly well. Um, and, and the most gratifying thing uh, for me, too, was uh, I had people that already owned my books and they brought them over to have them signed. And I thought, that's that's really cool because, yeah. Yeah, that is, that is great. I mean, because they saw, you know, they must have enjoyed it enough to say, oh, this guy's here now. So mm-hmm. anyway, it's just it's always great. And, 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 oh, and I also want to emphasize that I find like after my first book where I had a you know, look for stories. I now I find get a lot of my ideas from talking to readers at library talks mm-hmm. or at um, book signings and stuff like that. So, so That's yeah, great. it's really. Uh, so you have another one that you're working on. When do you anticipate having that one available? Is that 2024? I am hoping to have it out early next year. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So right. and that will yeah. I don't have a name for it yet, but I, like I say, I also am, am, am simultaneously working on a, a, a compilation book, uh, but as well as two books that would be, you know, single story books. So single crime, uh-huh. single Good. person. And one of them, well, I might as wow. well say uh, one of them is a, uh, one of them is a 1970 murder in Detroit of a okay. man who killed his daughter and her friends. And one of them is a brothel owner in uh, Clare in the lumbering era who shares my last oh, name. Okay. He's one of the nastiest people I've ever written about. But, uh, no direct lineage oh. there, but, but uh, yeah. <laughs> that should be a fun one. That whole lumber era with all the lumber barons was a fascinating Michigan period, you know. It so. really was, yes. Well, it's been great having you on today, Tom. Um, And like I said, folks, if you want to check out and get Tom's books, I'm going to put all the links in the show note descriptions. But you could also just search his name on Amazon or go look at your local community bookstores uh, because they often try to carry uh, Michigan authors, especially if you're here in southwest Michigan. I said it doesn't hurt when you go in and ask for the... uh you know, at the local bookstores to ask for local authors, uh, not just myself, but other local authors so that they know, you know, oh, mm-hmm. this is somebody that people are interested in so they can order it. So it helps us and you and them. Right. Yeah, I think so. 
And that is always great advice. Well, I have been speaking with Tom Carr, the author of three incredible true crime books on Michigan's past. And that is what this show is all about, Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And if you'd be so kind as to leave a rating or review on whatever app that you are listening on, it would be greatly appreciated so that we can reach other history fans and have them tune in and listen to this podcast. It always helps to reach new people that way. And while you're wandering around Facebook the next time, be sure to go to Tom Carr's Facebook author page and hit the like button and at the same time go to michael delaware author it's always helpful to have that as a resource when you promote a new book out there and both tom and i have books coming out in the early part of 2024 and that's going to wrap up today's adventure i appreciate having tom carr on today and so until next time when we take another journey into yesterday and we explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>